0: Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer SS&C Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now.
1: Good morning, everybody. My name is Karen Gorman. I am one of the healthcare directors within Blue Prism, and I'm joined today by Mike Obinowski, the Chief Digital Officer for an Iron Bourbon University Health Board, and Jason Borridge who is their automation architect for an Iron Bourbon. We're going to be talking about this morning, how the health board have used their intelligent automation, Blue Prism Cloud platform to help them prepare for the COVID-19 public inquiry. Uh, We've got this this technology within over 80 NHS trusts in England and across a number of health boards in Wales. So uh, you've either potentially already got the technology or you can look at uh, implementing the technology to be able to prepare for the COVID inquiry. So what I'm keen to cover really, Mike, is uh, for you to introduce yourself and your, your role within the health board and look at why you, you decided to use Blue Prism to be able to prepare for the COVID inquiry.
2: Thanks very much, Karen. And uh, good morning, everyone. So my name is Michael Godofsky. I'm the Chief Digital Officer at Iron Bevan. It's an integrated health board for primary community mental health and, and acute with about 16,000 employees and we cover the the area of Gwent in in Southeast Wales. So we, like everyone else, have been uh, long awaiting knowing that there was going to be an inquiry around the, the response. Um, to to COVID nineteen, which we're all still a little bit tired from, I'm sure all of you on the panel as well. But one of the things that we we did learn from the infected blood inquiry was the amount of manual processes that are involved. The infected blood inquiry obviously went back a long time to where there are archived um, records, or even where records potentially were were destroyed under old legislation. But actually, it was a very narrow cohort of of patients compared to the COVID-19 public inquiry, where the, the, it, it's such a broad remit and there's more information now being stored, that actually it would be very, very overwhelming exercise to be ready. Of course, there's, it's, it's about risk management and risk appetite and reputational management of, of the NHS and for an iron Bevan. We wanted to be in a state of preparedness and readiness, really. And um, so that if we were asked for information or to provide evidence to the inquiry that we're able to do so in a, in a timely manner, but also to provide an opportunity for review, not by a robot, but by information governance colleagues and, and by board uh, members, uh, should context or conversations need to happen before submission.
1: Do you want to cover the challenge, Mike? What was faced with you, with, with the public inquiry coming up? Uh, how, much, how much was spent on, on your blood inquiry in, in man hours and people?
2: Okay, so again, going back to a very narrow scope, we, we'd spent over £200,000 on, on archivists to be able to prepare. And, and whilst this hasn't been driven by a cost saving exercise, once you've done the development and, and told the workers what you want them to look for, but also how you want to file different types of documents for easy access, we're, we're saving considerable sums of money, but moreover, we're, we're providing a higher quality service in, in terms of um, providing the records we able to look at emails, SharePoint, even Teams chats in terms of the reality of how we all did respond to COVID at the time. So we started in a, in a risk-based approach of we haven't really got going with the inquiry. And like the rest of the UK, we weren't really sure what would be in scope what wouldn't be in scope and what we were likely to be asked for. So this provided for us a really good value for money approach because we would established an RPA service already, and we're able to agree the terms of search and agree how that we would want that to be filed as we did do with the blood inquiry, but then a couple of virtual workers to to get on and do that for us. So we've already collated uh, a huge amount of information and we're we're starting on um, email correspondence as well at the moment. So we'll be in a good state of uh, readiness. Should we be asked for, for evidence in terms of the inquiry, but equally, we're also starting to see the potential of this in terms of freedom of information, uh, act inquiries and subject access request inquiries, which under GDPR we get less time to do. And of course we don't get to charge uh, subject access request fees anymore either. This is also providing a lot of information to our board secretary and to our executive in terms of our own internal review of lessons learned and what went well as well. So that's, that's something that's creating some excitement. at board level is that we're able to quite easily pull that information together into a very coherent, set of documents that are, that are easy to retrieve. One of the things that this does give is time. So. Because we'll be able to have the boring work done, if you like, by the virtual workers, it creates time to allow for review, to allow for discussions against the the, the time allowed by the inquiry and the coroner to be able to provide information back and to provide context to the information that we're providing.
1: And I think that's key, isn't it? That time by having that that work done to prepare you allows you to give the time to be able to put the right context and the right responses together as and when you get asked the question. And I guess that's a huge reputational uh, effect if you don't have that information to hand. The
2: corporate confidence that it gives us is, is that we do have time for, you know, the DPO to review in terms of redaction of records, where it's not where it's appropriate to share staff or patient identifiable information, but equally it allows time for for us as an organization. Uh, to understand the questions being asked and to add value instead of spending all of our time trying to find documents, but to add value to the stack of documents that we would be submitting to the inquiry.
1: And if you weren't using digital workers, if you were using people to scan through this, all, all your SharePoint information, how long was that going to take you?
2: Okay, so I think to be able to do it, it to the same level of quality, and that's important, I think we would have been making compromises and incurring risk. even Even if we were spending £200,000. We were estimating it would take between two to three years for us to be able to collate all the information. And don't forget, we're still in the bounds of the inquiry. So information that we're sharing now uh, with the appropriate search terms is also submissible to the, to, to the inquiry, including a response to the inquiry. should Should we be asked? So we just felt that it wasn't really an option for us to try and do the manual tools that we've had, you know, we've had to do in the past. But RPA gives us an opportunity to really focus skilled staff on the value added tasks once the search once the search has been completed and the files have been configured for easy access.
1: And like in a public inquiry, excuse my ignorance, um, but do all will all trust be asked questions for the public inquiry? Will all trust and health boards, or is it is it a subset of them?
2: So if it's anything like the other inquiries, it's going to be iterative. Um, and so, you know, there is, there is a, a chance, if you like, a risk that actually we won't be asked for any evidence from an IronBab, but once an inquiry will, finds a thread it wants to pull on, what you might find is that it's not just one set of responses you're providing. It could end up being a very, you know, an ongoing dialogue almost between the inquiry and and a health organization in in terms of further questioning, going another layer down in in terms of, but why did that happen? Who was involved in that decision that was made that we can see in the minutes of this meeting. And that's where we're able to say straight away that we're already prepared for what those iterative questions are going to be. But we're able to respond quickly to the first iteration of the inquiry, should we be asked. There's a there's a risk appetite discussion that I think all health health boards and trusts, if they haven't had, need to have in terms of 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 what they want to invest in or what risks they want to accept, in terms of being able to meet the needs of the inquiry.
1: And I think the point you made earlier was was the risk is also the fact you're doing this you're you're learning your lessons within the health board of how you responded to COVID. So. None of it is, is a waste of time, is it at all? You're, you're actually being able to improve the service that you're providing.
3: Completely.
2: So this shouldn't be just an exercise for a, for us to service, you know, a coroner, a set of, of open, leading and closed questions as we're expecting it to happen. But actually for us to be able to reflect on what was, we're all hoping, a once-in-a-career I- I- event where we did, you know, rightly relax governance, make decisions on best information available. And and actually there are a lot of positives that came out of, came out of that as well. We are challenging ourselves on trying not to go completely back to normal, but to look at how we can make more, more quick and effective decisions as a, as a board. I guess what are the
1: other, and uh... a benefits that you've had from, from using digital workers is, is that through this analysis, they're taking a copy of the documents, so you've got no risk that there's going to be any changes to those documents that that will give you the, the historic path of events. Yeah, and
2: the way that we've tagged all the documents is that we're able to almost have a 3D model of against the questions that we think we're going to be asked, we're able to, to, to look longitudinally against, you know, a patient pathway, for example, but also then have a line of sight as an organization in, into into the decision-making from procurement through to admissions at the, at the front door in emergency department. Yeah. Brilliant.
1: Okay. That's really, really helpful. Okay, Jason. I'm going to move to you because you're the one that actually um, built the process and trained these digital workers into uh, what they needed to do. Do you want to just walk us through what it does? What are the digital workers doing with all the documents in SharePoint?
3: Okay, thanks, Karen. Uh, my name is Jason Burridge, and I'm Bevan as well. I'm the automation architect there, and I head up the RPA team within an Iron Bevan. It's uh, team of uh, three or four, three or four people within our center of excellence. So yeah, we were tasked with this opportunity to automate preparation for the, for the public inquiry. So this is kind of, as Michael was saying, it's a bit of an intuitive approach. Uh, it's, it's going to be something that, that evolves in stages as we go along. This is by no means the, the full story of the automation. But really the, the the first stage is really to go through the immense amount of documentation we have and try and and narrow that documentation set down to something that we feel is of relevance to the inquiry and would be of relevance to any information we need to gather or evidence we need to gather to answer questions. Okay. So just diving into a little bit about what the automation does. Mike's talked about, you know, us looking at emails and teams and network drives as well. I'm not sure if Mike mentioned those, but you know, they're, they're all areas where we've got, we've got, uh, documents, documentation and decisions stored and communications correspondence. Yeah. There, there's also things like Twitter and, uh, Facebook, where things have been published and our intranet and our internet. There's a number of platforms that we will ultimately be working across to to gather information. But yeah, I mean, we, we've been through a process of migrating everything to SharePoint from our network drives. So SharePoint seemed the logical place to start. We, we started by identifying which SharePoint sites were most likely to contain the relevant information. And across those SharePoint sites, we, we were looking at around 300,000 documents. So that's just a Huge amounts of documentation for someone to try and trawl through. Not only only would that be uh, a lot of work, I really wouldn't want to be one of the people trawling through those documents. So what we do is we we take the list of, of, of documents from SharePoint. We look at the file types. We're only interested in certain file types. So Word documents, Excel documents, PowerPoint, text files. There's some message files as well, emails, PDFs. So we look at the file type, first. there's no point in looking at, looking at stuff that that's, that's not the right file type. We, we download that for analysis locally. If the file is an email, we extract any attachments from that email. So we, we subsequently link. If those attachments are of interest, we, we provide a, a reference back to the email as well, so we know where they came from. So everything's traceable. We open the, the file in in the relevant application. And we, we make sure we're extracting all the text. So PowerPoints can be a little bit challenging because you've got text boxes and and all sorts of stuff, even have text boxes in Word. We've managed to work around all of those to extract all of the actual text that's in the documents. Okay. If the robot can't extract any text, we then, we we actually record that. We pass it out to our archivist for, for manual checking. We don't want to leave any stone unturned at this stage. Okay. So we then, this is the meat of the work. We examine the text in those documents for over 200 search phrases. So we went through quite a lengthy process of brainstorming the sorts of phrases and words that, that, that are likely to indicate a document is of interest. And they fall into two broad categories. So you've got words like COVID, which obviously means it's, it's a relevance. But then you've got things like, I don't know if it's called the Indian variant anymore, but uh, if the word Indian is in there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's related to COVID. Okay. So there's two kind of broad categories of words and we've split the search phrases down into those two categories. So if we find one of the words that is definitely associated with COVID, that means documents of interest. If it finds other words in there, that gives us context around what that document is is talking about or has in it, okay? If it is a relevance, all right? So if it's got the word COVID and the word Indian, then it's likely talking about the Indian variant, perhaps, all right? So we go through that, we search, we check for all those search phrases. That would take a huge, a huge amount of time to do, okay? We recalled every phrase that, that we find in the documents. We've got a complete list, we count them up so we know just just how Relevant that document is, each search phrase has an applicable date range. So if, if you take some of the variants that, that have, that have um, occurred during COVID-19, they occurred during certain date, date ranges. There's no point in looking for, for, for a variant, you know, back in January 2020. Okay. So we've got, we've got date ranges around every single search phrase. Uh, so if the document date is outside that date range, we don't bother looking for that search. So we have other attributes. So against each search phrase, we've got like a theme so we can, so it gives us a bit of context around the theme of the document. We've also got importance of that search phrase and we've identified based on what the search phrase is, but the directorate responsibility or the most likely directorate responsibility for that document, okay. So we've tagged a load of metadata off the back of those search phrases. All right. So when we start finding the search phrases, we can record all of this. Uh, it gives us a huge array of information about the document and allows us. So once we've indexed all of these documents, all of the phrases that we found, all this other metadata, we can actually filter on it very easily. So if we wanted to find all the, all the documents for a particular uh, aspect, uh of, of the code inquiries we wanted to understand what we what we did in response to a particular variant, okay, then we can actually look through that index uh, and find documents, documents that actually reference that variant or, or the, the the, phrases that we feel feel are, are applicable. Um, so if the document isn't of interest so we've not found any of the important search phrases in it doesn't mention code, doesn't mention anything dictates the document would be in interest. We just ignore that document. We move on to the next one. We record the fact that we've searched that document. We record the fact that it's not of interest. We've got a full audit trail and we just move on to the next document. We also analyze, if the document is of interest, we analyze the file name, try and determine what type of document it is. It could be a newsletter. It could be minutes, it could be you know, you a board uh, or some, some communication or a policy. And then what we do is if, once, once we've got all that information, we take a copy of that document, so we've got a snapshot a snapshot of it. It's uploaded into an archive. It's a structured archive, so we can find everything easily. We have references back to the source of the original document. We record the date the document, the copy was, of the document was taken. So we've got a full audit trail of everything we've searched through. We're gathering as much metadata as we can, and we're indexing all of that, okay?
1: Brilliant. Now, Jason, how many documents have you searched through so far with your digital workers?
3: That's a good question. So we've gone through around 37,000 so far.
1: And how many of those have got documents of interest?
3: Potentially of interest, 15,000.
1: Interesting.
3: Okay. So it's quite a high get rate, but the beauty of this is that once we've narrowed down the the 300,000 on SharePoint, we've narrowed down the other the other text and documentation we're going to be going through. We've then got a smaller subset. So if we get more specific, if we get specific questions from the inquiry or need to look for a specific piece of evidence, then it's much, we've got our own archive of the copies. We we've, we've got a much smaller documentation set to search through, and we could just reconfigure the search phrases to dive in Mm -hmm. and just find the relevant documents.
1: So once, once you get those questions posed by the inquiry, you can then reconfigure and add new search criteria to your subset of documentation.
3: Yep. And it'll be a much quicker search because we have all the metadata. Yeah. We're just interested in finding additional search phrases. Okay. So it's going to be a much, much quicker process. I mean, it's already processing documents. Uh, I think it does a document in around 20 seconds. Um, on average, it is just staggeringly fast compared to, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I reckon a few would probably take 20, about 20 minutes to do the equivalent piece of work, maybe even 30.
1: But as Mike said earlier, potentially not as accurately, cause it's, you know, it's got human error into it.
3: Yeah. I mean, when you're doing such a mundane, mundane activity, covering just thousands of documents,
2: you. You're, you're relying on people who, unfortunately, we can only pay a certain so they won't necessarily have vast experience, and you're asking them to make a subjective decision each time. Whereas what we've been able to do is to make those subjective decisions at board level and agree those, and then the yeah. virtual worker has to has to obey <laughs> and is consistent uh, throughout.
3: And we can pretty much, if we get a, a question that requires us to, to do another quick search through documentation. We can pretty much do that, you know, over a weekend or just over a night or over a day. We could throw a few additional workers at it, if necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very easy just to scale up, to, to respond very quickly. So if we get a bunch of questions in, we could throw a number of workers at it, or we could potentially have the, the evidence gathered or the relevant documentation to pull out evidence from by the next morning.
1: And I, Jason, I guess that's the beauty of having a a cloud based environment, isn't it? Because you're not having to throw more workers at it. You're not having to put more infrastructure in place. You just ask us to to put those extra workers or or use some that you've already got in your platform. I mean, in in the similar way that we we added extra extra workers for when you uploaded all your COVID results into your patient records, uh, to be able to churn through that massive quantity. Of patient records to get that up there.
3: Yeah, that was two million COVID vaccinations uh, all uploaded.
1: Jason, you mentioned about you can add like extra search criteria uh, in into your automations. I'm going to hand over to you because you're the expert. Do you want to give a high level overview?
3: <laughs> so what what we've tried to do with this is make make the process obviously as robust as possible. It, w- when you're searching thousands and thousands of documents, you're leaving it to run over the weekend. You just can't, can't risk it just stopping and on a, on a Friday evening at 11 o'clock and, you know, you know, don't spot it until, until the, the following week. Okay. I've been watching it over the weekends anyway, but, uh, you know, yeah, not, not 24 hours a day, so, you know, there's a key thing on robustness and, you know, that, that's what the big blue blocks are in here, actually, where we're capturing exceptions and, and handling those, but, but yeah, what it does, it, it's This, this process has been broken down into, into different stages. So it's all, it's all quite modular. So if, if we need to, we can, we can actually take a subset of this process to build an additional process to, to, to do the more detailed searches. Mm -hmm. Fundamentals are already there. It's we've created uh, those building blocks or pieces of Lego, if you want to call them Lego, and we could just slot them together in another process just to to do a more detailed search, it's configurable as well, this particular process you're looking at, so it's all configured from, from an Excel spreadsheet. all we'll will search phrases and the other bits of uh, information that allow it to make decisions around importance, the direct responsibility uh, and so on and so forth.
1: And one thing you said in your next phase is, is adding the sentiment analysis potential of the uh, digital workers. Talk talk to us about what you're looking to achieve from that.
3: Yeah, so this is one of the advantages of, I don't sound like a salesperson for Blue Prism Cloud, but it's one of the advantages of of Blue Prism Cloud. You've you've got the Azure Cognitive Services and one of those uh, provides sentiment analysis. So the the plan is there is, I don't think we'd want to put all documents through that. But I think in particular, when when we start looking at at, at mail emails and mailboxes, Then the body of the emails will, will probably put through sentiment analysis to see obviously get a positive, negative statement, neutral statement, just, just get a little bit more information uh, about that email. Okay. So yeah, I think one of the other things that's that's not mentioned here that we, we, I've I've noticed there are, there are quite a few scanned documents or SharePoints. Not a huge percentage, but when you're looking at 300,000 documents, you know, a small percentage is still a, a good number of documents. So I, I've yet to, to plug this in, but one of my other thoughts for the next phase is potentially looking at, at OCR to, you know, pull off the text from those scanned documents, that mm. we can then analyze the text in the scanned documents. But that's something we're monitoring just to see how many, how many we do see that are scans. There have been a few. So.
1: Brilliant. So our call to action, really, I mean, I think it's fascinating looking at how the health board have approached this. And as you said, it's 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 understanding the risks, isn't it, Mike, of, of the work that you've done to put you on a front foot once the COVID inquiry starts asking questions forward. So to, to look at how you can approach that in, in the best possible way. Mike, Jason, anything else you want to add on that summary?
2: From an Iron Bevan perspective, the... The process mapping that we've done, the configuration of Blue Prism that we've done is available. There is a community of practice, I guess, isn't there it's safe to say. And so other organizations are very welcome to use that with the caveat that if you, if you could improve on it, then let us know too, to help us through the process as well.
1: Uh, And I think that's a key point. The community of practice is, you know, let's not repeat work that's already done across the NHS and share things that you've done. But for then those trusts that have shared. To, to do the reciprocal, and once they start building automations to share it back uh, with the health boards, etc. So it works hugely to create that community across our 80 plus NHS co- customers. I'm interested to know, Mike, across Wales, have you got any other health boards that you've socialised this that are interested in picking this up?
2: Yeah, so our, our neighbours in in the next valleys across in, in CumTAF, we've actually been helping train some of their guys to to to, not to code, but in terms of uh, the, the the process mapping, the Valindra Cancer Centre are really keen in terms of the COVID inquiry. Welsh Ambulance Service Trust are also interested And we we're doing. I haven't told Jason this yet, but we'll, it's likely we'll be doing a presentation to the rest of Wales Digital Directors in, in July because we all find ourselves in the same boat.
1: Mm, absolutely.
2: What's the least worst way of, of us being able to prepare our boards and to protect our boards as chief digital officers in, in terms of this inquiry, but also in terms of other stuff that we've that we've done, learning from our colleagues as well.
1: And again, expanding that community of practice across Wales is just so beneficial, isn't it? To avoid you all doing the same things and spending time
2: on the- yeah. Well, and, and on a UK basis, you know, Oracle Finance, ESR, there's a lot of systems where we are using lots and lots of labor to, to do work that actually they could be released to do more analysis, more interpretation, more value added tasks that, that RPA can, can do the, um, the, the boring stuff, I guess, you know, the, the large, large volumes of, of, of data that require routine processing. It actually has, has increased morale uh, already for us in HR and finance where people are released from doing some of that repetitive work it speeds up the process it increases the quality but actually we get to develop our staff.
1: yeah it- and improve their satisfaction as well when the burnout rate's so high actually if they can remove those robotic tasks from their day-to-day activity it makes it makes their job more more enjoyable and able to to do the work up to their pay grade to what they're meant to be doing
2: yeah, so HR colleagues have called there, given their robot a name, but actually they've said that they're taking the robot out of the human in the, in the projects that we've been doing, that, which I thought was really nicely put.
1: Yeah. And like, obviously, you know, this huge issue across all, all health trusts at the moment around workforce capacity and being able to retain staff and recruit staff and with volumes just of activity increasing and managing backlog. Have you seen the digital workers helping you manage capacity issues within the health board?
2: Yes. So, you know, particularly f- for the, for the areas, robotic process automation fits really well is tends to be the areas where people with, with a lot of experience required, but they're on fairly low pay, uh, pay rates in, in relation to, you know, clinical workforce, this means the turnover and churn is a lot higher and recruitment can be more challenging, but it's quite crippling to the organization if, if you can't get the, the work done. So we have had a focus around some of the heavy transcribing uh, tasks in, in finance and in, in health records, IT help desk, we're, we're looking at automating to, to be able to help people with the tasks where they don't really need to speak to someone uh, to reset their password and things like that. And it provides a better service um, to, to our clinical workforce and to our organization, and it does impact on patient care positively.
1: And, um. You, you said provide a better service. I know when we did the work with the COVID vaccinations, you mentioned to me about the improvement that made to patient flow with patients presenting with yeah. it within says- the disease. Can you expand on that?
2: Yeah, of course. So the records for the immunization again, because we were all doing things in a, in, in, in a very hurried way, was difficult to actually get into the patient record. So we were having patients present to the emergency and creating quite a, a, a backlog um, of clinical work while we were retesting and risk assessing where the patient should go, as in a red ward or, or a green ward, depending on their status of vaccination and symptomology. What we were able to provide is, you know, almost in, in real time is, is a trusted record of whether the, that patient had a vaccination or not, and, and how many vaccinations or when the last one was. So for our infection control staff, bed managers and ED physicians, it took um, a lot of the time out of, out of uh, the decision-making process. And we were able to make a risk-based clinical decision because the information was served up where and when it was needed. Also for us, that provided a a better outcome in terms of management of of infection within the acute hospital environment.
1: Brilliant, that must have made a huge difference.
2: It made a huge difference to the morale of the clinicians in A&E as well. (laughs) Yeah,
1: brilliant. Okay, well, Mike, Jason, thank you so much for sharing your experience and the work that you've done to prepare to the inquiry. I think it's been really, really beneficial. Have a good day. Thanks, everybody. Thank
3: you, Gary. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blue Prism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.